Amen. Praise the Lord. I'll invite you to turn your Bibles to John chapter 14. I, um, we've been teaching on Sunday mornings a series that we've entitled The Name of Jesus. And there's some things that, uh, um, that are really big on my heart. So I'm just going to share some stuff that's, uh, that's on my heart relative to the subject of healing. Uh, I'm not going to promise if you, if you come on Sunday mornings as well, you may hear this sermon again as part of that series. So I'm not going to make any promises, but maybe I'll refine it so that it'll be even better then if that's the way it goes. Anyway, John chapter 14, in verse 12, Jesus is speaking to his disciples on the last night that he's with them. And he says, verily, verily, I say unto you, verily, verily, always means pay attention. This is the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. Verily, verily, I say unto you, he that believeth on me, the works that I do shall he do also, and greater works than these shall he do because I go unto my Father. Now, we've talked about this some uh, in the morning services, but uh, it, uh, um, in case you haven't been with us, and just for the sake of uh, the, the tape and the message for those maybe that wouldn't, have not been part of the other services, we need to make some, uh, some comments on this. Where he said, He that believeth on me, the Bible speaks over and over again as salvation being believing in the name of Jesus. You remember John says, First John chapter 3, verse 21, I think it is. He said, uh, uh, this is the commandment that the Lord uh, gave to us. Two things. Number one, believe on the name of Jesus. And secondly, walk in love as he gave us commandment. Well, it, literally what that's saying is God requires two things under the new covenant. And that is, number one, that you be born again. You remember Jesus said in John chapter 3 when Nicodemus came and wanted to know about the miracles, he said, you must be born again. So the first requirement is to be born again. Jesus is the only way to the Father. Now, being born again literally means believing on the name of Jesus. It literally means to believe that God sent Jesus to the earth, that Jesus paid the sacrifice for our sins, and God raised him from the dead. To believe on him leads, therefore, to the confession that Jesus is your Lord. You can't confess Jesus is your Lord and it mean anything unless you believe on the name of Jesus first. That's why Jesus said, go into all the world and preach the gospel. He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. Baptized means to get saved. We think of baptism as water baptism. But as I mentioned this morning, there are uh, nine different times in the book of Acts. Eleven if you count uh, two different times, specific times. It's talking about being baptized in the Holy Ghost. Now, there are other times where it speaks of being filled with the Holy Spirit instead of using the word baptized. But there are nine times in the Bible, in the uh, book of Acts, the early days of the church, where it speaks specifically of being baptized in the name of Jesus. Now, it doesn't always use that phrase. Sometimes it's baptized in the name of the Lord. Sometimes it's just baptized. And, uh, and so oftentimes, because we have such uh, a wrong thinking, a wrong idea of water baptism, the reason for that, in my opinion, is because the church has majored on baptism, water baptism, and the different forms and who's right and who's wrong and so, so forth, that every, every time or most of the times that people hear the word baptism or baptized, they think immediately of being baptized in water. But of the nine times in the New Testament, in the book of Acts, where it speaks of being baptized, we only know of three of them that are associated with water in any form whatsoever. Now, there's one more that might be, but you can't tell by the, the things that are related in Scripture. Well, if it doesn't speak of water in every case, then baptized in the name of Jesus can't be a formula. So what is it then? It's God's way of saying being set in. That's what baptized means, being set in or placed into the name of Jesus. Therefore, if any man be in Christ, or in other words, in the name of Jesus, he's a new creature. 2 Corinthians 5.21, or 5.17, I'm sorry. 2 Corinthians 5.17. So in Christ... In him, in whom, by him, and so forth is all another way of saying in the name of Jesus. See, the Bible tells us to live in the name of Jesus. It doesn't just tell us to use the name of Jesus. It says to live in the name of Jesus. Therefore, the phrase in the name of Jesus is not meant to be some ritual, some religious ritual or some religious form. It's supposed to represent that we are in Christ. Our life is hid with God in Christ. Are you out there? Okay, so where Jesus says... Verily, verily, I say unto you, he that believeth on me. Everything that he talks about in the 14th, 15th, and 16th chapter of John, the last night Jesus was with the disciples is about going to the Father. He starts off in the first, first few verses of chapter 14, and he says, don't let your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. I'm going to the Father. I'm going to make a place for you. What's he talking about? Salvation. First thing Jesus did when he reappeared after his resurrection in John chapter 20, he breathes on them and says, receive the Holy Ghost. Now, did they get something or did they not? If they did not, then Jesus was, uh, was tricking them. Jesus was a partner to a fraud. If they did not receive something, then Jesus lied to them. 
Well, I don't know that he would be a worthy redeemer if he's a liar. I know that sounds sacrilegious, but it makes the point. Jesus didn't lie to them. He gave them something, and that something changed their lives. It changed their, everything about the way they operated. Before they were huddled up behind closed doors because they were afraid of the Jews. Now they're openly in the temple filled with joy. Joy is one of the first things that the Bible says about being filled or uh, the fruit of the Spirit rather. Not being filled. But the fruit of the Spirit is love and joy. First two things that it mentions. That's one of the first things that shows up in them. They're openly in the temple. They're bold now. They're full of joy. They're not full of fear. They're not full of anxiety. They're full of joy. Something's changed their lives. What was that? The new birth. Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away, and behold, all things have become new. So when Jesus said, verily, verily, I say unto you, he that believeth on me, he's talking about he that believes that I am the Messiah and confesses me as my Lord. Confesses me as his Lord. That's what he's talking about. And that's what it means to be baptized in the name of Jesus. To be baptized into the name of Jesus. We've talked about this before. But water baptism is just a sign. An outward sign of something that's already taken place on the inside. It wouldn't do any good for somebody to come to church and say I want to be baptized. If they haven't been born again. Because all they're doing is getting wet. It makes no change in their spiritual condition whatsoever. Baptism is a blessing only if you've taken place with the, the attitude of heart. To believe in Jesus as the Son of God and confess him as your Lord. Baptism is just an outward sign that you've died to the flesh and now you've been, risen the, you've been raised again into new life. Are you out there? Do you understand what I'm saying? So when Jesus said, verily, verily, I say unto you, he that believeth on me is talking about the, the people that are saved. Those that are born again, those that accept him as their Lord and Savior. Now notice what he said would be the result for every believer. This is God's plan. I know it's not true in practice, but this is what God wants. And since we can say and identify that this is what God wants, or another way to say that is this is the will of God, then if it doesn't take place in your life or in mine, the responsibility is yours and mine, not God's. Hello. Verily, verily, I say unto you, he that believeth on me, in other words, he that is saved, here's the new creature in Christ Jesus. He that believeth on me, the works that I do shall he do also, and greater works than these shall he do because I go unto my Father. I think I mentioned this morning as well. Some people cop out on that and say, well, we're just doing the greater works. We're getting people saved. I would submit to you, and we've already talked about it from John chapter 20, Jesus got these guys saved. So salvation has got to be one of the works Jesus did, not a greater work. Well, Pastor Mike, what are the greater works? I really don't know. I'm going to concentrate on the works. One thing's for sure, we can't do the greater works on, uh, in and of ourselves. So if we concentrate on doing the works of Jesus, like he said, we know what those are. Those are clearly shown in Scripture. If we concentrate on doing the works, then the greater works are in God's hands. I believe one thing that, uh, one thing that I know of that took place in the early church in the book of Acts that did not take place in Jesus' ministry that could be considered to be a greater work is that people were healed by Peter's shadow. Nowhere do we have in the four Gospels any time where people were healed by Jesus' shadow. Now, folks, I believe Jesus was greater than Peter. Don't you? Yet here's a supernatural, spectacular work even that the Holy Ghost does through him because Jesus has made a place for us with the Father because of the new birth and the resurrection. Do you understand? So Jesus says, these are the signs or these are the works. These are the things that the believer, those that are in Christ, can expect the works that I do shall he do also and greater works than these shall he do because I go unto my father verse 13 and and means it's in connection with the greater works or the works and the greater works and is a connector it's connecting what he just said about the works and greater works with what he's about to say and what is he about to say and whatsoever you shall ask the word ask does not mean request it means call for or require it means to make a demand on I say this every time that I get to this point because some people have the idea that making a demand on God is some kind of arrogant or, or uh, uh, blasphemous thing to do. But I would remind you that this is a demand that you place on a legal, re re legal relationship you have with God through the name of Jesus. Just as you have a legal relationship with your bank, 
When you opened your checking account, you signed something, you agreed to something, you, you made some kind of mark, electronic or otherwise, that said you agreed to the terms of the contract. And the terms of that contract are very simply, you have a right to make a demand on the money you have on deposit in that account. It has nothing to do with arrogance. has nothing to do with attitude of any, sort, any type whatsoever. You don't have to be mad. You don't have to be upset. You don't have to be a jerk to write a check. You're making a legal demand. You're making a demand based on the legal relationship you have with the bank concerning your checking account. That's what this is. It's a legal relationship. Jesus is describing a legal relationship in order or to enable you to do the works that he did and even greater works. He said, and whatsoever you shall call for or require, demand, in my name, I will do it. He's saying, because of the relationship that I'm creating for you with the Father through my death and resurrection, death, burial, and resurrection, you have a legal relationship with God and the ability, you are enabled, you have the right, you have the privilege to use my name, and whenever you do, I'll make it good. Now, he said that's what belongs to every believer. In the church world, we have the idea that that belongs to those who have a special ministry. Some special miracle call upon their life. Jesus said this is what should be with every believer. Do you see it? And whatsoever you shall call for or require, make a demand on, in my name, I will do it. That will I do. Notice the last phrase, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. Notice Jesus not only says he will back up his name, but he says why. Here's why I'll back up my name. Here's why I will respond to anything that's called for, required, or demanded in my name. Because of the relationship that you have with me, through, with the Father, through me. Here's why. I'll make it good for the purpose, the express purpose, of the Father being glorified in the Son. Then he says it the second time in verse 14. If you shall ask, call for, require, or demand anything in my name, I will do it. Now, folks, you can't get a stronger statement than that. You cannot get a stronger statement than Jesus saying, I will do it. And he said, whatsoever you ask, call for, require, or make a demand on in my name, that's what I will do. And the, the only stipulation, the only thing that's, uh, that's, uh, uh, that limits this in any form whatsoever is the reason Jesus said that he would do it is so that the Father would be glorified in the Son. So if you're asking for anything that glorifies God, you can expect, if Jesus knew what he was talking about, you can expect it to be done. He didn't say maybe so. He didn't say hope so. He didn't say the chances are good. He didn't say if you get there early enough before God gets busy in the day. He said anything that you're calling for or requiring or placing a demand on in my name, if it glorifies the Father, you can count on it being done. Jesus said, I will do it, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. Now, that's where the devil will start having a heyday. That's where he'll start trying to turn you inside out. Yeah, but you're, the things that you want, the things you're using the name of Jesus for, they're just for you. They don't glorify God. You're just being selfish. You don't really need what you're asking for. You just want it for you. Well, Remember, Jesus said, the works that I do shall you do also. Talking about those that are saved through the name of Jesus or in the name of Jesus. Peter, in preaching about this, said there's no other name under heaven whereby men must be or may be saved. So anybody that's saved is saved in the name of Jesus. That means the name of Jesus has to include and has to and, and really is the, the beginning point for the name of Jesus is salvation. Now, that relationship, that salvation relationship that belongs to us because of Jesus' resurrection and the place that he made for us because of his sacrifice and because he went to the Father, that is the beginning point for everything that we do in the rest of our lives. Literally, Paul said, writing to the church, Paul wrote to the church and said, whatever you do in word or deed, do it in the name of Jesus. Now, we don't, if you stop and think about that, Paul is saying, live your life in the name of Jesus. But that doesn't mean everything you do, do it in the name of Jesus. He didn't say pick up the phone in the name of Jesus. He didn't say write a report at work in the name of Jesus. What is he saying? He's saying recognize that your life is hid with Christ, hid with God in Christ. You are in Jesus. 
That's the only way God sees you. God doesn't see Jesus and sees you. God doesn't look at his right hand and say, well, there's my son. And there are those guys. No, he sees you in Jesus. Jesus talked about he's the head of the church. The church is his body. In other words, they're one and the same. That's the way God sees us. God doesn't look at you and say, well, I know Jesus made some promises. And in your case, I wish he hadn't. We think like that. We think, well, I'm not worthy to call on the name of Jesus in this situation. Especially with the devil screaming in our ear saying that you don't deserve this. You did wrong. You did this. God doesn't see you as an individual. He sees you in Christ Jesus. That's why the Bible says he loves you just like he loves Jesus. Well, he doesn't love you in the same way that he loves Jesus because you've done wrong or because you've done right. That's not what it is. He loves you because you're in Christ. Jesus said, the man that loves God will receive me. And the one that doesn't receive me doesn't love the Father. So God loves you because you made the choice to make Jesus the Lord of your life. And that will never change. That puts you in God's good favor and God's good graces for all of eternity. Boy, I wish we could get a hold of that. I'm starting to. I'm starting to. I'm I'm further along than I was last week. And the Lord's leading me more and more into the, the reality of it. And boy, when we see it, we're going to go through the roof. Sometimes I catch myself floating a little bit now. So Jesus said, whatever you do, whatever you call for, require in the name of Jesus, that's what I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. Let's look back at some things in the, in the, the um, what are they called? The four Gospels. Let's look at the four Gospels and see what happened in Jesus' ministry, what Jesus did, the works that Jesus did that glorified the Father. If we can find out what glorified the Father in Jesus' ministry, then we can have an idea of what will glorify God now. Amen? Turn back with me to Matthew chapter 9. We'll start, we'll go through a kind of a um, chronological, or that's not the right term, but we'll go through them one by one in order for the sake of... um, um, time and so that we can find them easily now matthew chapter 9 is the same story in mark chapter 2 and luke chapter 5 and all three of them say exactly the same thing notice in chapter 9 uh verse 1 and jesus entered into a ship and passed over and came into his own city that's capernaum by the way and behold there brought unto him a man sick of the palsy lying on a bed and jesus seeing their faith said unto the sick of the palsy son be of good cheer thy sins be forgiven thee And behold, certain of the scribes said within themselves, This man blasphemes. And Jesus, knowing in their thoughts, said, Wherefore think ye evil in your hearts? For which is easier? Whether is easier to say, Thy sins be forgiven thee, or say, Rise and walk. But that you may know that the Son of Man has power on the earth to forgive sins. Then said he to the sick of the palsy, Arise, take up your bed, and go into your own house. And he arose and departed to his house. But when the multitude saw it, they marveled, And glorified God, which had given such power unto men. What caused God to be glorified in this event or in this situation? The man's healing. The man's healing. If this is a pattern, if this is a principle, then we can see that people are glorified, that God is glorified when people are healed from sickness and disease. Now, Mark and Luke give us a little bit more information about it. They talk about going up on the roof, couldn't get into the house, going up on the roof and let him down through the tiling or the ceiling of the house. But it's all the same story. And every one of the three three accounts say, and the people marveled and glorified God when they saw it happen. Look with me over to Matthew chapter 15. Matthew chapter 15. Let's start reading in verse... Uh, 29. And Jesus departed from thence and came nigh into the sea of Galilee and went up into a mountain and sat down there. And great multitudes came unto him, having with them those that were lame, blind, dumb, maimed, and many others, and cast them down at Jesus' feet, and he healed them. Now, I don't know how you read that, but it seems to me like he healed them all. Otherwise, it would be uh, do us a disservice to say he healed them. It would have said he healed some of them. If he didn't heal them all. He healed them means he healed everybody. Insomuch that the multitude wondered when they saw the, bl- the dumb to speak and the maimed to be whole and the lame to walk and the blind to see 
And they glorified the God of Israel. Are you beginning to see a pattern? Healing in Jesus' ministry glorified the Father. Turn with me over to Luke chapter 7. The only time in Mark that it speaks of somebody glorifying God is the account in Mark chapter 2 where the guy's let down through the roof. Luke chapter 5 has the same account of the guy being let down through the roof, and so we'll skip over that and go right over to chapter 7, beginning in verse 11. And it came to pass the day after, this is after the centurion comes and and, uh, his servant is made whole, and Jesus marvels because of his great faith. And it came to pass the day after that he went into a city called Nain, and many of his disciples went with him. Apparently not all of them, but many of them were there. And much people. So it must have been a crowd. Now, when he came nigh to the gate of the city, behold, there was a dead man carried out, the only son of his mother. And she was a widow, and much people of the city was with her. And when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her and said unto her, Weep not. And he came and touched the bier or the coffin. And they that bare him stood still. And Jesus said, Young man, I say unto thee, Arise. And he that was dead sat up and began to speak, and delivered him. And he delivered him to his mother. And there came a fear on all, and they glorified God, saying that a great prophet is risen up among us, and that God had visited his people. And this rumor of him went forth throughout all Judea and throughout all the region round about. Notice what glorified God in this situation is for the young man to be raised from the dead. Verily, verily, I say unto you that believeth on me or believeth in my name, the works that I do shall he do also. And whatsoever you shall ask, call for, require, demand in my name, that's what I'll do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. So what works is Jesus talking about? We see very clearly he's talking about works of healing. We see even the works that Jesus did was raising the dead. Look with me over to Luke chapter 13. I particularly like this one because it shows God's attitude, not just what he did, meaning Jesus. Luke chapter 13, let's start reading in verse 10. And he was teaching in one of the synagogues on the Sabbath. And behold, there was a woman which had a spirit of infirmity 18 years and was bound together and could in no wise lift up herself. And when Jesus saw her, he called her to him and said unto her, Woman, thou art loose from thine infirmity. Notice she did not come to Jesus. This is not her coming in the press behind like the woman with the issue of blood. Jesus sees her and Jesus moves toward her. And he laid his hands on her and immediately she was made straight and glorified God. What caused her to glorify God? Being made straight. Or being loose from this infirmity. Now I don't know what caused her to be bowed over together. It says it was the spirit of infirmity. There's different ways you could read that. Different ways you could translate that. Infirmity doesn't always mean sickness. Very rarely in the scripture does it mean sickness. Sometimes, a few times, but not very often. Infirmity means weakness. So most probably, according to um, some commentators and, and, and others, uh, and I don't, you judge it for yourself. I'm not making a determination on this one way or another. I'm just throwing out a possibility. Some commentators say that this woman was not sick or paralytic as such, but these were the effects of some crippling sickness or crippling disease that were left upon her body. It doesn't say she had palsy. If she was crippled because of palsy or something like that, it would have said she had palsy, but it didn't. And the fact that it didn't might indicate that this is the after effect of some crippling disease. For example, you see some people that had polio, they're healed of the polio, but they still have the effects of the, of the limp and stuff like that in their bodies. It might be something like that. Regardless, whether you accept that or not, whether you want to consider that or not, doesn't matter to me one way or the other, because the end result is Jesus laid hands on her and the power of God made her straight. And it was when she was made straight that she glorified God. Now, that's not the end of the story. That's the end of it as far as she's concerned. But now Jesus has the religious people to deal with. And the ruler of the synagogue answered with indignation. That means he was mad because that Jesus had healed on the Sabbath day. And he said unto the people, there are six days in which men ought to work. And them therefore come and be healed and not on the Sabbath day. Now, what's his problem? His problem is that he's made a God out of the Sabbath. Rather than recognizing that God made the Sabbath for himself. He's worshiping the day. 
not the God who created today. And Jesus answered and says, now I know this is a problem for some of you folks, so let me understand, let me explain. I don't want to offend anybody. Jesus answered and said, you hypocrite. You look to the four gospels and find where Jesus got testy with people. It's always with the religious people. There were people that had genuine questions and, and, uh, and concerns and, and they didn't know what to think about things. And Jesus explained carefully on those situations. But when it came to the religious people, he got right in their face. He called them hypocrites. He called them snakes. He said they were of their father, the devil, and so forth. He called them empty tombs that had been whited over or whitewashed over. You hypocrite, Jesus said, does not each one of you on the Sabbath loose his ox or his ass from the stall and lead him away to watering? In other words, you're willing to break your own Sabbath rules for something that benefits you. But you want to try to impose those Sabbath day rules on somebody else and keep her from receiving something that's even better than what you do on your, concerning your own animals? So Jesus says in verse 16, here's what I love about this story is because, again, it shows Jesus' attitude. Remember, she did not come to Jesus for healing. This is somebody that Jesus sees and Jesus goes out to. And here's why he does. Here's why he ministers to her. Here's why he sets her free. Verse 16, and ought not this woman, two reasons, being a daughter of Abraham, number one, number two, whom Satan has bound, lo, these 18 years, be loosed from this bond on the Sabbath day. He said there's two reasons why this woman ought to be turned loose. Two reasons. Number one, she's a daughter of Abraham. Notice it doesn't say anything about her good living. Notice he didn't say one thing about, well, she's worthy because of the, the sacrifice she's made in her life and, and uh, the suffering and, and still she's maintained a right attitude and kept the law. And, and Doesn't say a word about that. Doesn't say a word about her behavior. It says the reason that she ought to be turned loose is because of the relationship she has with God through his covenant partner, Abraham. Can I ask you a question? Does this woman live right? She ever told a lie? She ever cheated on her taxes? She ever cussed out her neighbor? We have no way to know any of that, do we? Why? Because Jesus did not emphasize her right living or her good conduct. Now, right living, good conduct, that's a good thing. We should bring forth fruits, meat for righteousness, appropriate for the righteousness of God that we've been made. But that's not what Jesus talked about. Jesus said she's got a relationship with God. Now, the relationship she's got with God is not half of the relationship you've got with God. She's not in Christ. She's in Abraham. Now, if that was all that it is, the Bible says in Galatians chapter 3, that Christ, verse 13, that Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law. And it tells us why. Uh, it tells us how, first of all, being made a curse for us, for it is written, cursed is everyone that hangeth on the tree. Verse 14 tells us why he did it, that the blessing of Abraham might come on the Gentiles. Verse 29 goes on to say, and if you be Christ, then are you Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. So if nothing else... If you don't even factor into the, to the equation that we've been united with God through Jesus' sacrifice and his death, burial, and resurrection. If you don't even think about being in the name of Jesus, being baptized into the name or into the family of God. If you don't consider any of that, you could accept that you're in the same place as her and, and a, uh, an heir of the same things that she was an heir of, God's attitude toward you would be exactly the same attitude as he had toward her because Jesus died, was redeemed us from the curse of the law so that the blessing of Abraham would come on those that have made Jesus the Lord of their lives. So if you don't even factor into the, the, the equation that God loves you, you're not a servant like they were, like the children of Abraham were, but you're a child of God because you're in Christ. If you don't even factor in the new birth part, you could say that Jesus' sacrifice, the price that he paid, puts you in the same position as her so that you ought to be healed too. But if you do factor in the truth that those that are in Christ have been made new creatures, a new creation in Christ Jesus, if you factor that in, then it's the same thing as God healing Jesus. 
if there was ever a need for that. His love for you is just as great as his love for Jesus. Folks, if Jesus ever got sick, you think he'd have a problem getting healed? Guess what? You're in Christ. It should be the same thing for you. Yeah, but Pastor Mike, it's not the same thing for me. I do have trouble getting healed. So what's the difference? The difference is very simply Jesus' mind was renewed to who he was. And that's a process for us. That's the road that we're on. But don't think for a minute that it doesn't belong to you just as much as it would him. It belongs to you even more than it belonged to her. This lady that was bound over together. Jesus said, and ought not this woman. Two reasons. Number one, Jesus said she ought to be healed. She ought to be set free because she's a daughter of Abraham. Well, you're a child of God and that's better. Number two, he said she ought to be set free because Satan has bound her low these 18 years. That means anything that Satan has bound you with, you ought to be as free as he freed her. That's Jesus' attitude toward those that he's in a relationship with. Uh, Old Testament relationship was covenant relationship. New Testament relationship is united together in the Father. You're excited about that, aren't you? I can tell. Do you see that that's his attitude? Well, if Jesus moved toward her because she ought to be healed for those two reasons, and we've got a better covenant established upon better promises, a better foundation to receive our healing than she had to receive hers, then why doesn't Jesus move toward us? Very simply, the same thing that we said before, because our minds aren't renewed to who we, have, who we are and what we have. You start focusing on the fact that, wait a minute, I'm in Christ. How does the devil put something on the one who is in Christ? There's only one possible answer to that, and that's through lack of knowledge on our part. Lack of our minds being renewed to who we are. So what's the answer? Get in the Word and find out who we are. Now, I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, well, I want God to do it for me. Reach out toward me and do it for me like you did for her. Well, you've got more than she had. You've got the word of God. You've got the Holy Ghost on the inside of you that will lead you and guide you into all truth. God wants to guide you into healing for yourself. Receive it on your own faith so that you can know who you are and what you have with him and your relationship with him. F.F. Bosworth, who, who was responsible for the healing of, of several hundreds of thousands of people in years gone by. He said this. He said, sometimes our instant healings are a curse. He said, the reason that that is, is because the devil always counterattacks. And if you didn't receive your healing on your own, many, uh, many of the people who did not receive healing on their own are not able to withstand the counterattack that comes. And therefore, they're left in a worse condition. Now, folks, that's a guy who ministered healing effectively and saw hundreds of thousands of people healed. Why would he say something like that? Because he knows healing is not just a matter of get sick, get well, get sick, get well, get sick, get well. Healing is a matter of the power of God being ministered to somebody, but then they take a hold of it by faith. Their faith is supposed to grow so that they're able to withstand the attacks of the enemy on their own. God doesn't want baby children all their lives running to somebody for healing. Now, that doesn't negate the fact that God will reach out to you and provide for you anything and everything that you need because you're his child and he loves you. But he wants you to grow. You love your kids, don't you? Don't you want them to grow up? Does loving your kids mean you always give them whatever they want for all the days of their life? Now, loving them may mean you kick their little butts out of the house and let them go make something on their own. If they got too dependent on mom and dad, sometimes they need a little kick in the rear end to go out there and make something for themselves rather than cost mom and daddy all the rest of their lives. Amen? Well, if that would be being a good parent... Wouldn't God be a good parent by expecting us to grow spiritually? Sure. It's not a mean thing. It's not an unkind thing. It's not a cruel thing. It's something for our good. It doesn't always feel good, but it's for our good. Okay, let's move on to the next one. Luke chapter 17. Luke chapter 17. Let's start in verse 12. 
Well, verse 11. And it came to pass as he went to Jerusalem that he passed through the midst of Samaria and Galilee. And he entered into a certain village. As he entered into a certain village, there met him ten men that were lepers which stood afar off. And they lifted up their voices and said, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. And when he saw them, he said to them, go show yourselves unto the priest. We've talked about this before. But that is an action that only a leper who is cleansed would take. That's what Jesus is referring to. He's saying, go show yourself to the priest as if you're already healed. That's what that means. And they know that's what that means. People with leprosy understood the only way that you can come out in public, the only way you can present yourself before the high priest is if you've been cleansed, you present yourself before him for him to examine you head to toe, back to front, to make sure that all the leprosy is gone. So Jesus is literally telling them to take a step of faith. Go show yourself to the priest. And it came to pass that as they went, they were healed. Notice they weren't healed and then Jesus said, or they weren't cleansed. And Jesus said, okay, now that you're clean, go show yourself to the priest. He told them to act as if they were clean before they ever were clean. Well, if Jesus told ten lepers to do that when he was here on the earth, wouldn't you expect that sometimes he's going to give us the same direction and instruction too? To act as if something has already happened, yet we don't see it in material form yet? Well, sure. And it came to pass that as they went, they were cleansed. And one of them, when he saw that he was healed, turned back and with a loud voice glorified God. And fell down on his face at his feet, giving him thanks. And he was a Samaritan. And Jesus said, were there not ten cleansed? Where are the nine? They are not found that return to give glory to God, save or accept this stranger. Notice all ten were cleansed, but only one glorified God for the answer. Now, that brings up another point. I mean, we focus on the one that came back and glorified God. But Jesus didn't stop, look into the future and say, well, now of you ten, only one of you is going to glorify God when I do this good healing work in you. So only one of you, the one that will glorify God afterwards, is going to get anything. Jesus did not discriminate between the one who turned around and glorified God and the nine who did not. Why? Because the mercy of God is available for everybody. See, the idea that you've got to do everything just right or else is just bogus. If you look at the life and the ministry of Jesus as an example. Why were all ten cleansed? Because they all said, Master, have mercy on us. And God always responds to an act of mercy or a request for mercy. And he said unto him, verse 19, Arise, go your way, your faith has made you whole. That says to me that he got something the others didn't get. Now, I don't know what that would be except maybe replacement of parts because leprosy eats away body parts. But that's just an idea. We don't know that for sure. Finally, the last one is over in John chapter 11. The last one we'll look at anyway. There are others, but we'll stop here. John chapter 11, let's start reading in verse 1. Now, a certain man was sick named Lazarus of Bethany, the town of Mary and her sister Martha. It was that Mary which anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was sick. Therefore, his sister sent unto him, unto Jesus, saying, Lord, behold, he whom thou lovest is sick. I love that phrase. The one you love, not the one that loves you. Not Lazarus is sick and you know how much he loves you, Jesus. Jesus, the one you love, is sick. Is there any way that Jesus loved Lazarus more than he loves you? It's impossible. It's impossible. Now, I know this is difficult for us because a lot of times, uh, depending on our life experience and family situations and the relationship we had with our parents and so forth, it's difficult for many Christians to see God as a loving father. If you didn't have a loving father, you may not know what that's supposed to look like. You had a father that didn't keep your word. That can hinder you from believing God always keeps his. But one of the best things you can ever do is start talking to God like you're the one that he loves. It'll change the way you see yourself in him. Now, many many people, maybe most people, don't have the courage to do that. 
But there's got to be a reason why the Bible says it the way that it does. I mean, we could leave this part out altogether and not hurt the story one bit. Therefore, his sister sent unto him, saying, Lord, behold, he whom thou lovest is sick. When Jesus heard that, he said, this sickness is not unto death, but for the glory of God. That the Son of God might be glorified thereby. Now, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and, Mary, uh, and Lazarus. Uh, well, we don't want to read the whole thing. Skip down with me to verse... Forty. Jesus finally gets there three days later. He says in verse 39, Take away the stone. Martha, the sister of him that was dead, said unto him, Lord, by this time he stinks, for he has been dead four days. In other words, it seems pretty obvious she's given up on anything happening. I want you to understand something, folks. Your deadlines doesn't hinder God one bit. Now, the fact that she says he stinks means the body has already begun to decay. When Jesus hears that, we would think that something, that something would be along the lines of once Jesus finds out that it's been four days, he thinks, oh, goodness, I thought I was here in time. If he's already begun to stink, even if I heal him, he'll stink for the rest of his life. It's just too late. What's too late for God who quickens the dead? What's too late? Now, I know we come up on deadlines where we think it's got to be now or it. That's it. If it's not by then, man, if it's not by Friday afternoon at 5 o'clock, that's it. It's too late. Nothing can be done. Something can always be done. I've had God miss my deadlines just to show me that my deadlines didn't mean squat. So she says, Lord, by this time he stinks, for he's been dead four days. Jesus said unto her, said I not unto thee that if thou wouldst believe, thou should see the glory of God. Now, you know the end of the story. Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead. So when he says in verse 4, the sickness is not unto death, but for the glory of God. And then he says in verse 40 to Martha, didn't I tell you that if you'd believe, you'd see the glory of God? What is identified as the glory of God? The raising of the dead. We know the end result of this story. Everybody believes. Everybody is amazed. Everybody comes to see Jesus because they heard about Lazarus. They want to see two people. They want to see Jesus who raised Lazarus from the dead, and they want to see Lazarus. Everybody wants to see him for themselves. Neither one of them can move around for a while because everybody wants to see these two because everybody's heard about it, and this is the thing that sets the Jews in motion to kill Jesus. If we leave him alone, everybody will believe on him, and the Romans will come and take away our place. That's when the high priest speaks prophetically and says, don't you guys understand it's better for one to die and the nation to be spared? He had no idea that he was speaking by the inspiration of the Holy Ghost as the high priest making the sacrifice, the Passover sacrifice for all of Israel. So what do we see? We see raising of the dead. We see healing of the, le- of the lame, uh, the blind eyes open, the maimed walking as glorifying God. Every time we see people that are healed, every time that we looked at in these uh, examples, what was there, six or seven of these that we looked at, maybe something like that, of these few examples that we saw, and there are others that we could get uh, uh, more of as types. But of these examples that we looked at, in every case, the people that were healed glorified God. And the people that saw the healings glorified God. Now, where does the church get the idea that God uses sickness to glorify him? Where does the idea come from where people say, well, I'm sick for the glory of God? Jesus raised the dead for the glory of God. Jesus healed the lame for the glory of God. Jesus opened blind eyes for the glory of God. He caused the maimed to be made whole. That means replacing body parts. Things that weren't there materializing. He said that glorifies God. So where does the church get the idea that sickness somehow glorifies him? Healing does. But you never find one place where anybody's glorifying God because they're sick. You never find one place where anybody's glorifying God in their sickness. Not in Jesus' ministry. You see everybody that's sick trying to get rid of their sickness. And Jesus is right there to help them. 
Well, when did God change sides on this issue? When, God, when did God and Jesus decide that people ought to stay sick and glorify God in the process? Folks, the Bible says God and Jesus never change. Which means if healing glorified God in Jesus' ministry, healing glorifies God now. Back to, uh, to John, chapter 12, uh, John chapter 14, verse 12. Verily, verily, I say unto you, he that believeth on me, here's every believer, every saved person, every child of God, he that believeth on me, the works that I do shall he do also. And even greater works than these shall he do because I go unto my Father and... Verse 13, and whatsoever you shall ask, call for, require, demand in my name, that will I do that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask anything in my name, I will do it. Is there any room? Honest question. I know the answer already, but I want you to consider it. But it's a real question I'm asking. I'm not just being a smart aleck. Is there any room to conclude that Jesus would not heal from the example that we have because we've been united with God through Christ Jesus and his sacrifice and we've been given a legal right to use his name to do the same healing works that he did to glorify God? Am I missing something? How do you make an argument against that? You can't make a biblical argument. I know people have different ideas, different denominations and different religious ideas, but you can't make a scriptural argument against it. Jesus said, if you ask anything, if you call for or require or demand anything in my name in order to do the same works that I did, that will I do that the Father may be glorified in the Son. We already see what glorified God and that was healing. Not only healing but maimed people being made whole and the dead people being raised. Now that may be a little extreme for some folks but those were the works that Jesus did and he said you'd do the same works and even greater works. My mind goes tilt when I start thinking about greater works than raising the dead. I have no clue. I don't even want to try to figure that out. I'd rather sit back and mind my own business, do what Jesus did, and then let God take care of the rest and turn around and say, wow, that was a greater work. Because for me, raising the dead seems to be kind of the top of the ladder. But maybe that's just my limited thinking. Are you out there? What are we to do then? We've made an ironclad case for healing in the name of Jesus. What are we to do? Well, turn with me over to James chapter 5. Let's conclude this with the instruction that God gave to the church by the Holy Ghost. He gave this instruction to the church on how to minister healing in the church. Now, folks, you understand That the reason God didn't give instruction to the church about every situation and every instance of healing or every condition of sickness or anything like that is because God expects us to be led by the Holy Ghost on our own and grow in our own faith. For example, the Bible does not tell each and every one of us, here's what happens when you get the sniffles. Here's how to handle that. Because it tells us what things soever we desire when we pray, believe we receive them and we shall have them. So there are principles that cover the, the individual cases. But there are situations, there is one situation where the Bible identifies what we should do in the church. And it's the only instruction that's given on how to minister healing in the church. The only one there is. Now, it's not the only way to minister healing. We know Jesus ministered healing in different ways. He laid hands on the sick. He spit on some people. He healed some people by his word and other, other uh, methods as well. We know that there were different methods of healing that took place in the book of Acts. Some people were healed through the laying on of hands. Some people were healed by the spoken word. Other people were healed through shadow. We talked about that. Some people were healed in, uh, from Paul, uh, taken from Paul, the handkerchiefs and aprons taken from Paul and laid on the sick people and they got healed that way. There are a number of different ways that people were healed. Different varieties of ways that people were healed. But there is one way 
And only one way that the Holy Ghost specifically identified in writing to the church. And it's interesting to me that it was written by somebody that was a pastor of the church of Jerusalem. James. The only specific instruction given for here's how to minister healing in the church. And notice what he said. James chapter 5. Verse 14. He said, is any sick among you? Is any sick among you? Let me stop right there and say that there's more to this verse of Scripture in the original language than just the way it's translated. It doesn't just mean, is anybody feeling poorly? It literally means, is any sick among you? Is anyone beyond doing something on their own or doing something for themselves? In other words, you're not supposed to call me when there's a sniffle. You're not supposed to call the elders of the church when you've got a tummy ache. You're not supposed to call the elders of the church when you're feeling bad or whatever the case is. You're supposed to use your own faith, develop in faith, between you, you, develop your relationship with God, your understanding of your relationship with God and the power of the word in your own life in any and every situation that you can. Jesus told Brother Hagin one time, I did not give the church gifts of healings and my name for, him to, for her to heal herself with. Those are things for, to be used to reach the unsaved. Signs and wonders to reach the unsaved. Well, what in the world does Jesus want us to use in the church then? He wants us to use our own faith, our own, to develop our own confidence in the word through experience. Believe we receive and you shall have. So here where it says is any sick among you. It literally means is any among you beyond doing anything for themselves. Sometimes we need help. But our first move should be to try to get it on our own. And folks that's in every case. Your first move when the devil attacks you, whether it's financially, whether it's physically, whatever the case is, your first move should be, what does the word say concerning my situation? Find what the word says, apply the word of God in faith, believe you receive the answer, and stand in faith to get it. Because if you don't, you'll never grow spiritually. I know of people that have been running from healing meeting to healing meeting for the last 35 years. And they have not grown one peg not one bit spiritually. They're still in the same place that they were 35 years ago. Well, how are they going to grow? Their faith is not being exercised. Their faith is not being put to, the, put to work. They're looking for somebody, the next person that's got something special from God to help them. That's what Jesus meant when he told Brother Hagin that he didn't put the name of Jesus and gifts of healings in the church for her to heal herself with. So where he says in verse 14, is any sick among you? It means literally, is any among you beyond doing anything for themselves? Now notice he said, is there? If he was writing to the church today, he'd say, now the 95% of you that are sick in the church, here's what you do. The fact that he asked the question, is there any sick among you? Is there any among you that are beyond doing anything to help yourselves? Indicates that there shouldn't be many. And if we understood that being in Christ, baptized in the name of Jesus, meant the life of God has set us free from the law of the spirit of, uh, of sin and death. If we understood that death had been abolished by the work of Jesus, and that's who lives in us. If we understood that greater is he that lives in us than he that's in the world. If we understood the real meaning of that and the exceeding greatness of his power that works in us. There would be very few that needed help from somebody else. Very few. The problem is most people don't try to do anything for themselves or they'll make a half-hearted attempt and say, well, I need to find somebody that's got some special power. That's not the way it's supposed to be, folks. We looked at it this morning in Mark chapter 16. Jesus said, go into all the world and preach the gospel. He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. He's talking about believing in the name of Jesus. He's talking about believing unto salvation. He goes on in verse 16. And these signs shall follow them that believe in my name. These are the signs that are supposed to follow every believer. They'll cast out devils. Not run from the devil. 
They'll speak with new tongues. They'll take up serpents. Another reference to exercising authority over the devil. If they drink any deadly thing, it shall not hurt them. That's a reference to divine protection. And lastly, the, the last one on the list, the last of five, is they'll lay hands on the sick and they shall recover. Every believer should be an outpost for healing, not a candidate to be healed. That's God's plan. That's the way God wants it to be. Well, why isn't it that way? Because we haven't developed our faith and, our, and the, renewed our mind to who we are in Christ. Now, I'm not throwing rocks. Everybody starts wherever they are. So wherever we are, let's start where we are. Let's start building our faith in the area of healing. What we told you tonight, what we read to you, just the examples, the few examples we used tonight, there is no way that meditating on that Quoting those scriptures, saying them, confessing them to yourselves again and again. That will develop faith in you for the name of Jesus to work for whatever comes against you in your own life. You'll come to realize what is. What it is to be, to be in Christ. What it is to be one with God through Jesus. What it is to have your life hid with God, hid with Christ in God. I don't know why I have a problem with that phrase. That's what it means, folks. Now, the devil doesn't want you to find that out. And the devil does not want you to try it. The devil wants to keep you leaning on and and relying on somebody else. Because if you find out what you've got because you're in Christ, his goose is cooked. We can develop ourselves, I believe. You judge this for yourself. But we can develop ourselves to the place where Jesus said, The evil one cometh and has nothing in me. He left us the same authority and the same power in his name to operate the same way he did. Now, that's possible. It's not very common, but it's possible. So where Jesus said, or where Paul, uh, what's his name? James. Where James says, by the Holy Ghost in verse 14, James chapter 5, verse 14, is any sick among you, is any among you beyond doing anything for themselves? Here's what you do when you need help. Let him call for the elders of the church and let them, the elders, pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. Now, the word pray does not mean what you think it means when we talk about pray. It does not mean request. It does not mean beg. It does not mean beseech. It means make a declaration. You'll find that Jesus nor the disciples in the book of Acts ever prayed for somebody to be healed. They ministered healing. They commanded people to receive their healing. But you don't see people being prayed for, for healing in the way that we think. God healed them now. That's not the way it works. Jesus said, whatever you call for and require and demand in my name, that's what I'll do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. The church is to minister healing, not pray for it. So here where it says, let them call for, let the sick, those that are beyond doing anything for themselves, let them call for the elders of the church and let them pray over them. It literally means let them make a declaration of faith over the sick. And the prayer of faith, the declaration of faith, verse 15, shall save or heal the sick and the Lord shall raise him up. Uh, let me go back to verse 14. I didn't read the whole thing. Is any sick among you? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, make a declaration, anointing him with all in the name of the Lord. Here's the use of the name of Jesus. The same use of the name of Jesus that Jesus was talking about in John chapter 14, verse 12, 13, and 14, where he said, these signs, uh, where he said, uh, he, verily, verily, I say unto you, he that believeth on me, the works that I do shall he do also. And greater works than these shall he do because I go unto my Father. And whatsoever you shall call for, require, or demand in my name, that will I do that the Father may be glorified in the Son. Verse 14, if you ask, call for, require, or demand anything in my name, I will do it. Here's where that is used. When somebody is beyond doing anything for themselves. So what's the Bible telling us? The Bible is telling us that if you reach out in faith, God will answer your prayer. He'll answer or respond to your faith. He'll respond to you using the name of Jesus in your own life. But if you come upon something that's too big for you to handle on your own, there's help for you too. He'll cover you both ways. Because healing belongs to all of the people of God. 
Let them call for the elders of the church and let the, the elders make a declaration of faith over them, anointing them with all in the name of the Lord. In the name of the Lord. In other words, using the name of Jesus. And the prayer of faith, that declaration of faith, not, Jesus, not asking Jesus to do something else, but to declare what Jesus has done. That's what anointing with oil has to do with, folks. It's a declaration. Anointing with oil means a, a recognition that Jesus is the Lord of my body. My body has been separated. That's what anointing with oil is all about. It's a separation unto. It's a dedication. Just as Jesus paid the price for my spirit, he's paid the price for my body. That's what anointing with oil is all about. And notice not one instruction is given to the Gentiles about it. It's only to the Jews. Because the Jews are the only ones that know anything about anointing with oil. Paul didn't anoint the churches with oil when he went and started churches in Ephesus and Philippi and Corinthians and Corinth and other places like that. They don't have any anointing with oil in their background. But it's a part of the Jewish history. So James, who's a pastor of a primarily Jewish church, says, here's what to do. Here's what the Holy Ghost has instructed us to do. Anoint them with oil in the name of the Lord because it's a declaration of faith that your spirit, not only your spirit belongs to God, but your body belongs to God too. When you do that in the name of the Lord, then the Lord shall raise him up. In other words, Jesus will do what you used his name for. He'll perform what you used his name for in that declaration of faith. It's really very simple, folks. It's really very simple. He goes even further and said, and the Lord shall raise him up and if he's committed sins. Doesn't say and everybody is sick has committed sins. It says and if he's committed sins. They shall be forgiven him. Doesn't take another special prayer. It just says God will cleanse you spiritually and heal you physically. 